Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Side Hustles and Stuff Podcast, episode 40. My name is Yuri, and I'm joined by Keishi. Hey, Yuri. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. What are you drinking? What am I... <laughs> <laughs> You're getting right, to the, getting right to the questions. <laughs> what am I drinking? I'm drinking something called Appetizer. I uh, picked it up today at the supermarket. Well, actually, no, not Appetizer. Grapetizer. The reason I got... These names mixed up was because I was researching what it is that I bought. <laughs> How about you? Uh, I'm drinking Fanta Premier Orange, which I guess is a is a fancy version of Fanta. Pretty good, not as sweet as the regular one, I think. And um, yeah, it's 16% juice compared to I don't know what's the usual Fanta. Ten, probably zero percent actually. I think. Oh. <laughs> well, actually, I haven't tasted mine yet. Well, you should. You should. The, the bottle looks pretty fancy. All right, let, let's crack it open then. That's carbonated. Um, hmm. Well, it's pretty much grape fizzy water, <laughs> sparkling water. It's maybe because I haven't had it in the refrigerator. I had it sitting my desk from like noon and afternoon to now. Yeah, it's not bad. It's pretty um, grape tizer. I hmm. Tastes a little more like cherry tizer to me, but <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad. I think definitely drinking out of glass changes up the experience. Usually, we're drinking out of plastic bottles or cans. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I actually, I actually prefer canned soda than, than pet bottle soda. What, what about glass? Yeah, glass is good too, I think. I think everything is better than pet bottle, essentially. Definitely. For, by the way, for anyone not familiar, pet bottles is the Japanese way of saying uh, plastic bottles. Yeah. Because that's only a term that we use over here. Oh, really? You don't use it in the United States? Uh, I think we just call them plastic bottles. Yeah. Pet stands for polyethylene therapy. The late, um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll include bottles. that in the show notes. <laughs> we can include that in the show notes. Yeah, it, it exhibits a melting peak temperature between 225 and 255 degrees Celsius. If anybody's interested in that, oh, but I'm a little uh, bummed about about this grape tizer because you know after I bought it, I bought it because it looked cool, right? It's just like a purple, not purple, but reddish uh, drink inside a glass, green glass <laughs> bottle. I was like, oh, this looks new. This looks interesting. So, I, you know, I spent a little bit uh, researching where it came from, and apparently it's made by Coke. So I was like, oh, I was kind of hoping, like, because, you know, every time we bring, like, new in, and interesting uh, Japanese drinks, but uh, I guess I got kind of fooled. Yeah, well, I, I believe my Fanta's, yeah, my Fanta's by Coca-Cola, too. So, um, yeah, I think in some categories of products, it's it's really hard to hide from, from certain big brands, big conglomerates. Yeah, because they're just everywhere. With like a tons of little products, so it kind of seems like if you go into a store and you see all these brands, but all these brands are probably owned by one big company. Yeah, exactly. And they either just start all these brands so that they they can just position them differently. Like I don't know, like the, the fat you have Fanta, you have Coca Cola, and you have stuff like that. And then you have this um, what is it called? Great Kaiser. Yeah, that, that seems a bit more healthy at the first sight, hmm. but it's still owned by the same company and. Um, yeah, I think we're chatting before recording this. Um, I think beer is very similar where you have like four or five big conglomerates that, that just went around and acquired a lot of um, a lot of small local breweries or, or, or larger breweries within smaller countries. Yeah. You have like Heineken, yeah. um, AB, InBev, I think they're from Belgium or something. And, and each of those have like a dozen or two dozen brands. And, um, and yeah, I, I think the average consumer has no idea. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, they walk in and think, oh, look at this selection. What do I want? Uh, yeah. But in reality, all of them are, you know, 
if you find out that all of those brands are owned by one, two, or three major companies or conglomerates, then it's like, well, you're essentially picking the same thing from the same person. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I think it's the same in beer industry. It's the same. Um, power tools are the same. I think like companies like Bosch and, and uh, Stanley Black and & Decker and, and a couple of others own a lot of the brands out there. Yeah. Um, I think cigarettes are probably the same as well. I would imagine shampoo and hygiene stuff is also very similar. Yeah, I think so. Like toothpaste, shampoo, um, soaps. It's, it's a lot of it is probably Procter and Gamble and, and a couple of companies. Yeah. But it's really interesting because I I think it, it I, I guess it's good in allowing them to take a bigger share of the market because like some people might buy the, the really expensive toothpaste. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> and others might prefer the cheaper one. And I guess like if the guys buying the really expensive one, we're looking at the at the expensive one and the cheap one as the same brand they wouldn't be as likely to buy it as when they see it as a completely separate brand that's that, that seemingly has nothing to do with the cheaper brands on the market, yeah. things like that. What is it called? It's called the illusion of choice? Yeah, I think that I, I sent you the graphic before yeah. with, with the beer brands, I think. Yeah, they called it the illusion of choice. And I, I really like that. I guess that's, that's really what it is at the end of the day. It's these giant companies creating or acquiring different brands to appeal to different groups of people without those groups of people necessarily knowing what, what that major company behind the brand owns yeah i mean on one side it's it is a it sounds like good business they're carving out niches and opportunities you know if someone's you know they're targeting particular demographics also and various flavors it makes sense so that's you know that's the upside for them yeah also the upside is you know for anyone that's looking for something cheaper then yeah it works in their favor too but like yeah the illusion of um the illusion of choice is an interesting, interesting thing because at the same, I don't want to make this comparison, but like I can't help but think of imagine you're in the market for a supercar, yeah, and then you find well, would, who would you go to? Would you go to like someone that specializes in supercars only, like say Lamborghini, right? Or what if you found out that there's a certain company out there that manufactures both Lamborghini and the Lada <laughs> and the Volga in Russian, the Zhiguli. <laughs> And it's like, at that point, it's like, well, yeah, sure, it's good. But I don't know, there's something off about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a good strategy. Um, I also think, though, that it raises some issues in terms of, like, competitiveness and things like that. Yeah. Because, again, it's like all these big brands are essentially going around and, and scooping the smaller brands and acquiring them. Um, but, but, yeah, it is what it is. And, and um, I, I guess people still have their favorite brand, even if... It's the same company behind the brand. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a very interesting business case for a business class. Yeah, I think so. And and the other thing is, like, I think with, um, with stuff like beer or, I don't know, cigarettes, I guess, or, or um, things like that, it's like you can kind of taste the difference, I guess. Hmm. But they, the, the bigger question in my mind is, like, if it's something like power tools. Yeah. Then, um, like, technically, you could have the same inside and just slap different cover on it. Hmm. and sell it for a completely different price because i feel like that's a thing with cars like uh i think who's lexus owned by because i know like like a lot of them use the same base yeah yeah lexus is owned by toyota yeah and then they just but they just slap on a different like what what i, I have no car terminology to back me up here but <laughs> they all kind of follow similar templates and similar bases and they just slap on a different exterior yeah, I think the chassis is always shared among a few different models, mm. like the the base that the wheels are on and stuff like that. 
Well, I guess it is what it is. So can you think of any downsides to this? <laughs> from, from the company's point of view or from the consumer's point of view? Consumers and companies. Well, companies, I think, I think in, in the case of the company that's doing it, I don't imagine much downsides because if, if you open up a new revenue stream, then that's all the good news for you. Yeah, for, from the consumer's point of view, like I think, again, not to be too much of a consumer advocate or anything, but but like I'm sure there are people that, that buy, I don't know, like that you live in, so we live in Tokyo. So let's say there's people that buy the Tokyo beer thinking that they're supporting local business in Tokyo. Hmm. But in reality, the, the money is going into like Heineken or, or some other multinational corporation. Yeah. So, so I think that's, I, I wouldn't call it downside, but, but also I think it's something that might be confusing some people. Yeah, I think it's like with um, with affiliate links. It's like you have to have a disclaimer, right? That says, "Oh, this is an affiliate link. It's I might get money from Amazon." I feel like the brand should be clear about that. And I know that when you look at like um, toothpaste and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it says stuff like "part of Procter and Gamble" or, or something similar a lot of the times. Yeah. But I I believe also that some of the companies or or in some of the brands they could be more clear about that. Yeah. Uh, looking at this. Grape Tizer bottle. I don't see any mention of Coca Cola. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look everywhere, <laughs> uh, unless it's in Katakana, but I don't see that either. Not under the cap, not on the bottle. Well, yeah, because again, like I was a little disappointed because I wanted to buy like a cool Japanese drink, but and I was like, oh, cool, this looks new. <laughs> but instead, I got fooled. Like looking on the back, it says country of origin, Minami Africa, and then importer. Or, or exporter, I forget which kanji is which one, but it's definitely one of these. Read off Japan. Then Kabushiki Gaisha Tokyo, Minatoku, Minami Aoyama. Yeah, I wonder. It might actually be like a boutique brand that just happens to be distributed by Coca-Cola in one yeah. of the countries. Because I, I also know that in Japan, like um, I think Pepsi is distributed by Suntory, San, mm. the Japanese brand. So oh, that's I, true. I think sometimes they partner. It's a European refreshments, appetizer, grape tizer. There's also a pear tizer. Our registered trademarks of European refreshments. So I bought a European. <laughs> <laughs> that's even worse. All right, so so to recap, Yuri was under the impression that he bought a Japanese drink. Then he then he thought, or then we thought that it's a Coca Cola drink, but it turns out that it's an European that it's a European drink. Well, you know, I had another drink before this too, like, and I drank it all, and it was really good one. I should have I should have saved that one for the recording as well, because <laughs> that one I think was from Hokkaido. Yeah, you, you should have kept that one for the for the podcast. I think I have still the bottle somewhere, but you know, no one looks. No one likes an empty bottle, so I'll save. I'll uh, do something next time. Well, it, yeah, it, it's not like Fanta Premier Orange is exactly Japanese either. So. Yeah. Although I guess it's a Japanese version of it. Well, you know, yeah, the Japanese rendition of things is cool because, like, you know, yeah, there's McDonald's, but then there's McDonald's Japan. McDonald's Japan is gonna have some cool stuff that the regular McDonald's does not. Yeah. So, like, to that extent, I will, you know, I'll let that slide. But I, I just don't think that grape ties and apple ties were um, particularly, like, unique in that sense. Yeah. Well, you, you can bring something Japanese next week. All right. <laughs> but, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I really like the local versions of stuff. And, um, yeah, as you know, I was hoping to bring a drink from Kyoto because we visited over the oh, yeah. from, from Thursday until Sunday. So, so I went to a couple of stores and tried to look for a Kyoto exclusive drink for for the show, but couldn't find anything. But you were able to travel a little bit, huh? Yeah, it, it was nice. We went on Thursday, spent three nights there, 
got to do a lot of sightseeing. Um, it, it was on my to-do list for quite a while to, to go to Kyoto again, because I think the last time I was there was more, more than 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And, uh, and for those that don't know, I guess, um, Kyoto used to be the capital of Japan. There's, there's a lot of historic stuff and a lot of temples. And, and I've actually never been. It's on my to-do list also. You should definitely go. I think now is the time. So how did you go there by? Plane? Uh, no, we took the bullet train. As, as much as I love planes, like I think the nearest airport is in Osaka. Mm-hmm. So, so I'd have to go to the airport for like an hour, then spend an hour on the plane, then spend another 40 minutes or an hour or something on the bus to Kyoto. Yeah. Whereas on the bullet train, it's like 30 minutes to Tokyo Station from my house, and then two hours and a few minutes, and you get up right in Kyoto. And you get to see some really cool scenery as you, as you whiz by on the fast bullet train. Yeah, you, you get a really nice view of Mount Fuji because it passes right by. You know, I think America could use some bullet trains. Yeah, it, it definitely could. It's, 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 it's very much a car society, though. Yeah, but it's a shame because like, when I actually got on, on a bullet train for the first time um, back in October or November to go to Hakone. And it, it's, like, it's like getting on a plane, except it doesn't take off. It just, it's like you get on the plane, right? Imagine, you know, you, you sit down, you buckle in, blah, blah, blah. And then whoosh, the plane starts, you know, going, running, going down the runway. Yeah. Except in a Shinkansen case, it does not take off. It just only gets faster and faster and faster. Yeah, exactly. It's like being on the runway forever, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, cities are just passing you by in a flash of a, in the blink of an eye. And you almost wonder like, wow, like that was like, I got to Odawara in like what, less than 30 minutes. It was like around 20 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. I, I downloaded this app. It's called Speedometer. On my iPhone. And I think it uses GPS to, to figure out how fast you're going. Mm-hmm. And I think the max was like 280 kilometers per hour. On the one you were on? Yeah, on, on the one that goes to, to Osaka mm. and Kyoto. I think the one that, the ones that go to north of Japan, they go like 300 wow. or, or even more. I, I just feel like the U.S. definitely needs this, especially from like coast to coast travel, like going from New York to L.A. Yeah. That would make like traveling a breeze. Yeah, I feel like that's too much of a distance, though, because even in Japan, like, I think bullet trains are good up to maybe, like, Osaka in the south, which is about two hours, mm-hmm. and then maybe, like, Sendai or Aomori or something in the north, which is, like, two hours from Tokyo. Okay. But anything beyond that, I feel like plane is more efficient. But maybe, like, California to San Francisco, or I think there already is something from, from New York to Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. Perhaps. But, well, I, I'm no Californian, so I can't talk on this. I just imagine if California, if L.A. to San Francisco had a bullet train, <clears throat> what would that take? Ten minutes tops? No, they're pretty far. They're like one hour flight away, no? Really? Oh. Francisco. I've been away for too long. <laughs> yeah, it's 381 miles. So it's 381. It's 600 kilometers. Yeah, so it would be a two-hour ride, two and a half hours. It's like going to Osaka. Oh, okay. And distance between New York and California is... 2.9 k miles yeah because th- there's almost 5,000 kilometers yeah. so there's like 15 hours still on the train well i've taken the train for more than a day before <laughs> i've taken the trans-siberian uh railroad like back in my childhood days oh nice and I yeah think that was a week old, like a week or so or a few days oh that's so cool it's one of the things on my to-do list or on my bucket list i guess is to go from japan to, to slovakia only by by land and I guess yeah. sea. You gotta cross the sea. But like taking the taking the ferry to to Korea or, or Russia and then yeah. taking the train all the way to 
to Ukraine and to Slovakia. From- so the one thing I will, because this is like years and ages back, like when I was a little little kid, the only thing I remember just like passing by forests and lots of forests and lots of forests, like just tree, 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 trees covered in <laughs> snow. And I was, you know, I was really hoping I would see like a wolf or a bear, but no. <laughs> and like it would stop with these little small sleepy looking uh, train stops. Yeah. And it's, you know, like villagers. I I remember like villagers coming out and like staring at the train. I'm sure some of them had some things to sell and maybe they were waiting for people trying to get off. But like, I just, it it felt a little weird. Yeah. It's like the whole town comes out. It must be amazing to take the train. Like, I always find it amazing when I think that um, between Slovakia, where I'm from, where I was born, and Japan, where we are right now, it's only Ukraine and Russia. (laughs) Yeah. And like, Russia's just crazy. Before it was only the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, was Slovakia part of the Soviet Union? No, it wasn't part okay. of the Soviet Union. But I, I guess it was part of the, what do you call it, the Eastern Bloc or, or whatever. Oh, okay. F- friendly with the Soviet Union. Well, I think when the COVID thing dies down, the post-COVID travel, you can uh, get on that Trans-Siberian, tra- uh, Trans-Siberian Railroad. That's a mouthful to say. <laughs> yeah, that definitely something that I, I want to do. But, but yeah, talking about post-COVID, I, like when we went to Kyoto last week, it, it was really nice to just be able to kind of relax and take it slow. Because, um, like, I, I imagine when the COVID thing's not happening, like, the streets are crowded and there's so many people and, like, everything's so busy that you, you feel rushed and, like, you have to wait in lines and things like that. Yeah. Whereas there, there was none of that, of course, because um, I guess Tokyo is still under a state of emergency and, and um, the go-to-travel campaign hasn't been restarted yet. And, and not, not so many people travel nowadays for, for obvious reasons, which, which I think, on the other end, creates an opportunity for, for travel like there's never been in the last two or three decades, ever since like tourism exploded pretty much all over yeah. the world. And, and that kind of made me think, like, I, I think this, this is almost an opportunity to, to kind of... Um, reset the tourism industry i guess so to say because i feel like a lot of places have been suffering from over tourism recently mm. or, or as recently as as it gets before before covid hit yeah and i think places like kyoto or I, I think venice is like the poster child of that in in italy and I, I i just feel like it got out of control like you have all these low-cost airlines which is great because I, I think that's the nice thing about capitalism is that all these low-cost airlines and so on they were able to make money and at the same time, provide like really, really cheap travel to people mm-hmm. and provide more opportunities. And I remember when I was 16 or 17, back in high school, um, Ryanair in Europe used to have promotions where they would sell tickets for like one euro cent, so it is 1.5 US dollar cents or something, mm-hmm. which is insane, right? I, I used to go to Germany like every week with those tickets and they were always only available on Wednesdays and Thursdays. So, so I would I would go for like, Less than a dollar round trip, right? Wow. Either way, that's a cheap ticket. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, it, it's great because it allows more people to travel. But at the same time, like, um, tourist attractions are mostly, I guess, pretty limited resources. Yeah. Like, if you, there, there's only one temple in Kyoto that everybody wants to see, let's say. Or, or there's only a limited number of temples in Kyoto that everybody wants to see. So the more people come, the more... Um, I guess the worse the experience becomes for yeah. every single one of them. Yeah, there's like this is like um, I think a few years ago, <laughs> I think there was a case with uh, some sort of flower field in California where all the Instagram influencers would go take pictures at. But if you know, like, and they look nice and all, you know, posing with the flowers lying in the bed, even though you're not supposed to do mm-hmm. that. You're not supposed to do that. But if you took out like a, if you took a shot of like. Not their carefully curated shots, but if you zoomed out and took an actual picture of that field, 
Yeah. You just have people trampling and like standing on them, and it just it looks like a it looks like a hideous mess. Yeah, I, I remember that actually. I I don't hundred percent remember what the story was, but but yeah, I, I remember that. And and I think there's been more and more places around the world that have been facing that, whether it's because of cheap travel or everybody trying to get their perfect Instagram shot or or um or whatever. And and I think this is like a really good chance to just rethink the the way that um people approach tourism and that that communities and cities with tourist attractions um, approach this and it's a really hard problem i I guess because like really all you can do is just make the prices more expensive so that less people come but then there's also the question of like why should only people that have more money be able to see the cultural heritage or or whatever whatever you want to call it and it is a it is a difficult question um I, i i mean from one standpoint it's like these are these like you said these resources are are not exactly renewable or sustainable if um let's say over x amount of people go there a year or a month or a day it's like it's more damaging to the thing the more you know the more people you unleash into it in a yeah. sense do people have a right to visit heritage sites uh sure i think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm i'm not i'm not trying to argue from that angle but i definitely do think like one should keep in mind like how much people do you actually want in there because i mean tourist locations aside if post i mean not post pre-covid if you were walking down um Omotesando from the harajuku station it is yeah. it, it's terrible it takes the, the amount of crowds in there and how many people you have to squeeze by and like how slowly the crowd moves is insane post covid or during covid right now it's i think it's a lot better like the crowds have definitely thinned out yeah, I mean, on one on one side, all of those uh, boutique shops and really expensive stores like Louis Vuitton or whoever else is in there on the Montesando, they probably have less uh, tourists walking in there to buy stuff. But at the same time, it's probably it's a nice, it's a more pleasant place to be in, or at least walk down the street and you can get wherever you're going without having to without having to wait through a sea of people. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about this when we we're traveling, and and like that's exactly the kind of. Um, I guess that's kind of the two sides of the coin, right? It's like, on the one hand, you you don't want to have a lot of tourists because it kind of makes the experience worse for everyone. Hmm. But at the same time, for, for the infrastructure to be supported and to, to be able to be run, if you have less tourists, then you need to charge more, which just inherently makes it less accessible to to wide variety of people. So so like, I, I don't know if it would have to be some sort of government subsidy and a lottery system or something. Yeah. But like, yeah, it, it's a really challenging problem yeah i don't have an easy solution to this yeah but but i i I guess the main point is that i I think the the current situation kind of gives everybody a chance to rethink this and to kind of implement or try to implement new things because pretty much everybody's um almost starting from scratch in a way yeah there were times where i kind of wish there was like a separate funnel for tourists you know you know like think of a customer funnel right yeah like the the customer funnel will depend on what kind of customer you are and how you act, acted with the website you can you can go down funnel a or funnel b so i was always like thinking what if you know tourists that land at an airport they're funneled into another line well <laughs> they are funneled into another line technically at, yeah. the, at the immigration check but once they get into the city i was thinking like they should get funneled like just to, to a few areas like you know shibuya shinjuku whatever harajuku and then, like the other areas, kind of keep them out, <laughs> but that yeah. might be asking too much. Yeah, and it also gets them more concentrated in one one place. Like, yeah, I think it, it's it's kind of a multifaceted problem. I think because you, you could also argue that more more attractions, or I guess less dominant attractions, should be promoted better so that 
the crowd kind of gets spread across more places so that no single place gets overcrowded yeah and things like that but but yeah i, I was just reading that um it's estimated that 70 percent of residents of venice left the city in the past 70 years because of the increase in tourism essentially and and, and like yeah i think tourism kind of turns certain parts of towns into into theme parks almost yeah like Times square in new york I don't think any uh, sane New Yorker would like go to Times Square to hang out. <laughs> Maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> I'm also uh, out of touch at this point. But in, I, in I, my in my entire time, I never went to Times Square unless I was just passing through, and I would never go there on New Year's uh, Eve for the countdown, yeah. which is something that tourists would do notoriously. Yeah, yeah. I, I really miss New York. What you do for the pizza? I don't know. I, I just like the. I think we might have been chatting about that on this podcast before, but like I used to visit pretty much, I think almost every year for the last few years before COVID. Okay. And I, I just like the, it's probably going to sound cliche or whatever. I just like the energy that the city has. Like you're strolling on the streets and it's loud and it smells. And like, like in Japan, when you walk on a street in Tokyo, it's very sterile. It's like yeah. everybody's walking and like minding their own business and being silent and like everything's so clean and. Unless it's Friday, eight o'clock. Unless it's Friday, eight o'clock, yeah. And everything's like almost perfect to, to the point where it's just too perfect. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like New York has this kind of vibe where it's like you can feel the energy of the city and like there, there's smells in the street, there's noises in the street, and like people are talking, people are arguing, and there's like a bunch of weirdos mm. running around you. And it, it, yeah, I, I just think it's, 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 a, really it's like a wild, wild west compared to Japan. Yeah, and and, and it, it, I think it's really inspiring and, and it really gives a person some energy. Like, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't live there probably because of all those things. But at the same time, I feel like visiting it for a few days every year. Yeah. It's just a nice, like, recharge. Well, you know, like, uh, I, th I think the um, the tourists and the visitors get, like, a spark of energy. And, you know, the fresh-faced <laughs> people from, like, middle America who visit and were uh, moved there kind of get that sensation but i think give it a year <laughs> and like you'll you'll be feeling like every other new yorker as you're walking down the street you're just cranky sleepless <laughs> hopped up on coffee and uh it's probably raining or something and then you know that at that point you're irritated at everything but, but yeah, that, that's what i'm saying like I, I don't think i could live there or, or would want to live there but yeah. i like visiting it yeah well, it's definitely one of the best cities in the world i'm not gonna argue about that okay yeah so um I think keeping this episode in kind of a a um, in kind of a chat mood, so to say, and and to just exchange some ideas on on some topics. Um, the the other thing that I was thinking about the other day um, were courses, and mm -hmm. I think we both um, watched some of Coffeezilla's videos. Yeah. Um, who kind of tries to warn people from uh, from like different scams that are online. Yeah. And um, he had this thought of like almost inherently any expensive course or. I guess any course that costs more than a few couple hundred bucks cannot be valuable to beginners mm. because essentially, like I think what he said was like, if somebody's working for ten hour, ten dollars an hour, and they buy a two thousand dollar course, that means they're effectively effectively spending two two hundred hours getting that course, whereas they could just spend those two hundred hours learning the stuff themselves on YouTube, for example, or on Google. Well, I think uh, from that specific example, he was uh, saying that their money someone who doesn't earn a lot of money, their money is probably better spent on life necessities than um, trying to purchase like a $2,000 course or however, however, how many hundred dollar course 
was his argument that it's just a better financial decision of someone in that position. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it makes sense, although at the same time, I guess some people just... Again, I guess it depends on the outcome. Like, if you buy the $2,000 course and you go on to make $2,000 a month to a large extent thanks to that course, probably makes some makes sense. But but yeah, I, I think... um I, I, I guess he's right to, to a large extent. Um, although then again, people pay thousands of dollars for college all the time. Well, I don't. Well, I know we're entering a different topic here. I think. Well, just to just to frame or yeah, again, just to frame this um, conversation up. What we're talking about is online courses where you know there's tons of courses out there. How to learn marketing? How to learn photography? How to learn whatever? social media how to how to be successful they have courses on how to be successful and and these can be priced anywhere from let's say nine bucks on udemy to you know hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars say it's some uh guru personality who's teaching you success and for for you to be successful you must you know rip the shirt off of your back even if you have only a hundred dollars in the bank and you should pay him a thousand bucks anyway because it'll mean that you 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 know that you're your skin is in the game that you're serious about it. So this is the this is the framing of the conversation of what we're, we're how we're kind of approaching this. So like before we go any further, like I think there are a few there's a lot of things to consider here. One thing is, well, I guess the the, the premise is like are, you know our course is effective and our course is worth it is the ultimate premise of this conversation. Yeah, and I I, I think one thing or a few things to consider is like the numbers. Um, you know what's the completion rate of courses in the first place and the other thing is like you know there's also quality as in like who's creating these courses and putting them out there yeah and then there's a uh, you you mentioned schools and universities we pay you know tens of thousands of dollars for schools and universities but what we do end up with is contacts networking skills uh leads into careers and job opportunities you know you have companies going to universities actively hiring it's, I don't know. Like, I, I just don't think that courses and like online courses that you could take on YouTube or Udemy are exactly comparable to schools. Because, for example, let's say, let's say you're hyped up, you want to learn marketing, so you buy a course on Udemy, yeah, or for ten bucks, right? This just before we even get into the are they too too expensive or effective? You you buy that, and I don't know what the completion rate is, but I think the completion rate on these things is pretty small. Then, then the case is like, all right, after you complete it, then what? Like, just because you completed it, unless you have an active system where you can plug your knowledge and practice what you're doing, it's going to get left out and, you know, nothing's really going to happen. It's like, but the thing is with school, and again, also, if you learn, if you learn all the stuff and you have no system to apply it to, you have nowhere to apply it to, all, that's, all that knowledge is going to kind of end up in the back of your head and you might forget it. Whereas in school, sure, you might not be interested in a lot of the topics that you have to take. But the thing is, like, I think someone that's forced to go to school on average will become a lot smarter because simply you have to attend there. There's a structure to it where yeah. you can finish one course and then, you know, let's say let's say it's like let's say it has 30 lessons, 30 video lessons. You finish it. Lessons up. You know, you're done. Congratulations. Blah, blah, blah. What is, what's the next thing? The next thing is like you don't know what to do. I mean, unless you're <laughs> extremely smart and extremely active and you have a plan for yourself and you come up with a plan. It's like, like, you know, it's like I took that drawing course in Udemy. It's like, all right, what's the next step? Not that I'm interested in it, but someone could follow the same route. They finish the course. They finish it. All right, I don't know what to do next. Maybe I'll practice some more. But with school, at least school kind of, you come out on the other side a bit smarter, first of all, because there's a system. You have to go there. You have to attend. 
there's a lot of external forces pressing down on you. Whereas with a course, it's only, it's all internal. It's you have to push yourself through it. And I think people also, there's this, um, you know, like we, we all tend, we all admire people that have the inner resolve to get things done and control their own fate and yeah. whatnot. And, but I think there are much more success stories and I think it's much more effective to depend on an external factor because external factors guide us better. Internal resolve is what you really hope you would, but like case in point, take let's take. I, don't, I know we're we're we're. If I'm going to present examples, I'm a, I'm really presenting outliers, and it may not help the argument. But I like to think of the Rock, right? For example, the guy yeah. is a clear clearly a bodybuilder, <laughs> and it clearly has spent a lot of his life in a gym. Now, I'm not saying you could re- replicate his results, but what I'm saying is that you can go to the gym, you can get you can get some, you know, you can get shredded to some extent. But he his life and every pursuit that he took on, he was a football player before he went into wrestling, then wrestling, then acting. All all of these jobs depend on his physique. Yeah. So it's like it's 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 embedded like whereas someone that wants to follow a similar path and they're doing a job or whatever, their life is completely unrelated to fitness. They're going to have a hard time sticking with it because there's no structure there. You know, like he's he's kind of like living or whether by his own effort or whether by luck, he has he's like kind of a living. He's designed a, a life for himself where he can where his fitness fits into like his work or yeah. makes sense for it. Right. And I call that external because. You know that's his job. He has, if he 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 went into football, football demands that you have a strong physique. Done. He went into wrestling because of his family. Wrestling demands that you have a strong physique. Done. He, then his success relies on wrestling. I mean, his success relies on gym. Similar going into acting, he's already known for his uh, physique, so he has to maintain that at this point. So I really feel like external is much more powerful than internal because internal requires a lot of willpower. Well, yeah, I, I think you're right in terms of external pressures can make a lot of difference and, and they're important. What I'm starting to wonder is, is um, like the, the reason that I think universities are seemingly more successful than online courses, whether like self-paced courses or, or more like life courses, is that I think the general outcome is completely different and, and the goal is completely different. Like for most people that go to university, I think they aim to get a job, mm. which arguably is is a much more achievable goal than than being successful at something entrepreneurial, which is what most people taking online courses aim for, hmm. right? So, so I wonder if that plays a role too. And and again, I guess the question is like, if you tell 100 people not to take an online course, um, is, is it better than if 100 people take the online course and only one of them really succeeds? Because at the end of the day, it's a numbers game, right? It's like a thousand kids go to university, yeah. maybe 950 of them graduate, but only one one ends up being a CEO, right? And perhaps it's the same with online courses. Now, I'm, I'm not saying there are not no bad courses or no scams or anything, but as, assuming it's a good online course and it's a good student, um, I, I think there's a lot of value in there. And, and I think, um, I, I guess, to some extent, the numbers are skewed because it's, like I said, it's easier to drop out. Yeah. But um, but at the same time, those that stay are the ones that become successful just by the definition of it because it's more of an entrepreneurial thing compared to just you have to graduate and get a job. It, w- it would be curious to know the numbers, though, as to how many people like purchase courses and complete them and where they are, say, a year or two years later, because then they're kind of left on their own to follow up and take action on what they've learned. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and definitely would be good to know those numbers. And um, I think the, the other thing is that um, 
I, I guess there's kind of two two mindsets or two mentalities that you can go into a course with, I think. And um, one is you believe that it's, your, it's the solution to your problem. And the other one is you want to do something and it's just a tool that helps you get closer to it. Hmm. And I feel like if you go to the course thinking that, oh, I take this course and then I'm done and then I'll be a multimillionaire or whatever, th- then you're pretty much set yourself for, for failure. Hmm. Versus when it when the course is just a part of something bigger, then um, then you can get much more value out of it. If that makes sense. Like, like for example, I, I feel like you or I could get much more value out of a course than somebody that they just thought, oh, I should try starting blogging, so maybe I should take this course. I'm trying to un- I'm trying to unpack this in my brain. Uh, I I do think it really depends on how you approach the learning. The one thing that CoffeeZilla mentioned is like, you know, the first thing you, and I agree with is the first thing is you have to learn how to learn. Yeah. And even if you are in the entrepreneurial mindset, you can still buy a course and, but you are in consumption mode is like, all right, I want this package thing and you feed me everything that you know. Cause again, obviously we, we all, we just want to know, we just want to know what it is. We, we want someone to lay it down for us finally. So we finally understand it. But like, things tend to be a lot more complex than that so but i think when you, you when you purchase these things and i i kind of i wonder the same about myself when i purchase these things the the frame of mind is all right feed me everything you know and that kind of puts you in a very passive learning mode in my opinion i, I think there's much more there's much more passivity with online courses <clears throat> as opposed to physical classes or in-person learning or anything that involves a human dynamic because you're in straight up consumption mode and like yes it's your task to take the stuff that you learn and implement it if it's implementable but i think that's where there's a major drop off because one first of all it's hard to go out of pa- uh, passive consumption into active production and two so you know that's going to weed out a lot of people and two like you have to the sheer practice of doing that it's like is going to weed out a lot more people even though they know they have to do it so a lot of them still won't do it so I'm, I don't. I don't argue against online courses. I, you know, I buy uh, several occasionally and go through them. I just think that it's 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 they're not the complete answer, but they fill in the yeah. blanks. It's like the, it's the same reason why also I will also buy books or listen to podcasts. And but I th- I I think there's much more power in in person classes and more hands on um, dynamics than passively watching a video of someone explaining so and so. I, the copywriting course I was telling you about that I was taking on Udemy, uh, like I'm, I'm always, I will, I'm always wanting to be in production mode. So every sample, um, every example that he put up, yeah, I made sure to write it out word for word, just yeah, you because know, it makes writing is easier when you have a template that you wrote before. So, yeah, but I think anyone else just listening to this, they they wouldn't get much out of it. Yeah, you, you see that, that that's the issue though. I think because like somebody being passive is is it's not the course creator's fault. And it's also, it's also not an excuse, I guess. It's not an excuse. It's like, and it, well, I, it's, not, it's not the course creator's fault. But I think when, if, not if, not when, if, if it's marketed as the ultimate solution that'll fix all your problems for you, then that's where we start having a problem. And in, in a way, passing the buck and blaming, blaming it on the user is also, I think, not the best approach either. Because, you know, the, the content creator is like, oh, yeah, I just created it. And, you know, it's up to you to make do with whatever you want. I think your argument is valid, but it's half valid. Because I think, first and foremost, both of you have come to the, have to come to the table together and admit that, like, 
this requires action. You need to require, you need to put some work in, which means that it's on the course creator's side to force the user to take action in some way, at least encourage it in some way. Yeah, I, I think you have, actually, actually, I think you have a good point here. And now that you mentioned it, I think one of the things that a lot, definitely the marketing's um, oftentimes shady and, and even more often not 100% straight and, and straightforward and upfront, I think. But um, I, I think one thing that I guess the courses could benefit is from having some sort of prerequisites. Like at a university course, like you wouldn't jump right into, I don't know, economics 202. You would start with economics 101, right? Right. Whereas I think with a lot of online courses, the prerequisite should be ha- having something that you already worked on consistently for a certain period of time. Because then you have some sort of context that you can apply the new knowledge for in, right? Yeah. It's like, if you have nothing and you just start taking this course, then you're just swimming in this giant ocean and, and not knowing what to do. Yeah. Versus like, if you blogged for, I don't know, two months consistently and you posted like 30 articles and maybe you didn't do any keyword research, maybe the blog is completely bad or whatever, but you at least did something. And, and there's some, some base that you're starting with and you're taking that base and combining it with the new knowledge that you learned from the course to mold it into, into something better. Yeah. Right. Maybe that. Maybe that's it. I, I don't know. But but um, yeah, because because I can certainly see the case against the courses, but also the case for courses. I, I just don't think that you know. I, it's uh, you can blame the learner one hundred percent. At the same time, I don't think you can blame the course creator one hundred percent. It's it's a. I wouldn't call. I wouldn't frame it as blame in the first place because that, and, and that stands every, every. You know, you just two people arguing. You you scammed me. No, but you didn't do the work, and that's not a way to approach this to solve the problem. So I think it comes down to understanding how we learn first, because, and yeah. I, and again, that's what Coffeezilla preaches, and that's why you know that's why I've been also like trying to learn how to learn as well. And because when you know once you get that information, what do you do next with it? It's like. Someone teaches you, oh, well, in social media, if you want to have a, if you want to attract attention, then you must post a really nice picture. Here's an example of a picture. Here's an example of a picture. Here's an example of a picture. Next lesson. Let's move on to Pinterest. So like, <laughs> if, you know, you consume, you, you, you won't really get much out of that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think that's why, um, like, I see a lot of cohort-based courses popping up, which I guess is more like university education where you have the course but there's also like assignments and like interaction with the instructor and it's some of the things are live some are pre-recorded some are live yeah. but it's much more of a i guess much more of an interactive process than just consumption process yeah so so maybe that's part of the solution i think so i just don't think that online courses by themselves are the, you know because every now and then if you scroll down in the youtube comment section of someone or something course related or i don't know like someone will say like you know why do we need schools you know i could learn everything i could learn I could learn it all online and, you know, with all these courses that are out and it's just like a really complicated way. Like, yes and no. I don't know. Like, well, first of all, I don't know how many firms out there are looking to hire someone that completed five Udemy courses <laughs> as opposed to, say, a degree from a four-year university. But now, now let's say that you, you don't care about working at the top firm and you care about working for yourself. Then you might have an argument, but I still think that that it, having that external structure put sets you up for more success than like taking five courses, unless you're very motivated. I mean, this at that point it becomes uh, a conversation of how many people actually took the course and how many people actually finished it and how many people actually moved on to do something with it to call it a grand success or to call it effective. 
Yeah, and, and I guess that kind of brings it back to the marketing, right? It's like, sh- sh- how hard should these courses be marketed? And, sh- and should they be marketed in a way like everybody can be an entrepreneur? Or, or mm. should everybody oh. try to be an entrepreneur? If you read the copy in some of these things, it's like, <laughs> no experience necessary. <laughs> Anyone can do this. I mean, so, you know, they're trying to grab everyone in a sense. To, to earn the most money so people could buy their course. Um, maybe whether intentionally or not they're doing that, I don't know. And of course, can anyone be an entrepreneur? Sure. Will they be? Probably not because, you know, it's a game of statistics. Not everyone, not everyone can do it. Only like, you know, with the conversion rate on that will be very, very small. Yeah, exactly. And then I think it's a question of whether it's worth a try or not. And and um, and what do you need to try? Because yeah, I guess as as Coffeezilla says, if you have last thousand dollars, then probably spending them on a course is is not a good idea. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, if you if you're hungry for information, but you don't have a lot of money, uh, I think yeah, picking up a book is a more financially sound decision. You can probably learn the same things. But and the other thing is that one thing that I don't like about courses, though, like online courses, is there is a giant lack of theoretical fundamentals. You, you know, for example, here's the thing. When we go into school, we learn a lot of theory and then people complain, wow, 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 I just learned all this theory. I just want to learn how to do stuff. But if you're learning how to do stuff, you know, like it's like learn how to post on Pinterest, learn how to run an A-B test, learn how to post on, learn how to run YouTube ads, learn how to run Facebook ads. Like, so you get all these tactics, right? You get all these tactics. You learn how to do them technically. Yeah. But you don't understand the bigger picture behind it. And that's, that's where, you know, for example, with A-B testing, you can go and test colors, red versus green. You, you're going to get like crappy results. I mean, you can go and test a million different things and you should, but if there's no grand scheme thinking behind it, which is where theory comes in, you're going to be, you know, it's like you're going to be like a headless chicken running around trying to think you're doing stuff, but you have no grand scheme strategy in place of why you're doing this in the first place. And that's what I, another thing, like kind of, I don't like with these courses because they, they dish out the tactics, but you'll never or seldom learn why you're doing this stuff. Like in this stuff needs to be drilled in. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's another good point. Like a lot of, and again, I think that's the difference between good and bad courses is um, good courses. Look at the fundamentals and lay down the examples on top of that. Whereas I guess a lot of these online courses are based on some examples and, and uh, on, I guess, outliers and on, on some random sample group of like one or two. It's like, Here's how I made a million dollars, and that's exactly how you can make it too, which which never is the case, right? Yeah, and then even if it is the case that you made a million dollars, that does mean someone can replicate your process exactly. Yeah, to make exactly. seven million dollars. So, oh, well, I don't, I don't have an extreme stance against courses. Um, I do take them. I just don't think they are the complete answer, answer nor they are the uh, school beater. Yeah, I think I think if you look, yeah, if you take them as an as a tool to achieve some objective that's that's pretty specific not like i want to make a million dollars but maybe like i already ran a blog but i want to know how to better i don't know how to increase my conversion rate for affiliate offers yeah so take some course and maybe you take some maybe you learn some small tips and tricks here and there that that can help you improve what you're already doing i think that's good but but yeah they're definitely not the solution that's going to take you from zero to hero yeah that's going to take years of experience and a lot more courses (laughs) in in general education so uh, and, and trying and doing and, and just tinkering with stuff. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. Just, but it, it's more so. I think it's it's one. It's for intellectual curiosity. Just like for the same reason why you would buy a book. You're like, oh, I'm kind of curious in the subject. I want to learn more. So I, in that sense, I don't. I see. I don't see a, like a big difference between the two. Like 
between buying a course and buying a book. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, I guess it's good for intellectual curiosity and also like to fill in the gaps. Like maybe you know things, but you don't know it. You don't know everything. So you want to learn a little bit more. And that's where a course might answer some of your questions. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any courses that you're taking? Um, not right now. I, I bought a couple in the past, but I never finished them. <laughs> so, so I'm definitely not a poster child of course success. But but again, again I th- there's I believe some courses that I've taken that I that I've um, took some tips out of I guess mm-hmm. that I implemented. And also there's stuff that I learned for free from people that run courses and that I never had the never felt the need to actually buy the paid course because I felt like what what I needed to learn I could learn from their free stuff. Yeah. And and, and again I, th- I think that's also the other thing is like a lot of these course creators they already provide a lot of stuff for free. And oftentimes the, the stuff they provide for free is the, is the high-level strategy stuff. Hmm. So then it's just a matter of taking that and, and kind of playing around with it and trying to implement it within your business. And I feel like that can be oftentimes more beneficial than getting like the tactical level granular things fed right to you. Because yeah. again, then you just kind of try to go step one, step two, step three, rather than trying to think it through and see how it applies to your business or problem yeah. and kind of trying to mold it to fit what you're doing rather than the other way around yeah uh, I, well my my only gripe against online courses is uh the frame in which they put the learner into i think no learning is ever passive in my opinion like whether language or, or otherwise yeah as much as you would hope that you could sit sit back and watch and hope and, like it absorbs into your brain and just doesn't work that way and it requires a lot of act you know active questioning on your part too yeah like if you're not sitting there asking well why is this this and why is this that but what's the connection of this what's the meaning of that if you're actively sitting there and asking yourself these questions about the topic you just learned i don't think you're you're not going to retain anything out of it yeah if ever. but i also think that's the case with people in school too so it's uh just that with school, they're bombarded by it more. So yeah, they, they, it, they, it might, you know, plus they take tests. So like in school, there's at least there's some effort to maintain retention. Yeah, but, but there's also actually the thing that I wonder is like, definitely like life schools have better mechanisms in terms of how to keep um, students accountable and things like that. Hmm. But at the same time, I feel like their, their main advantage is just the fact that they're, they're more widely accepted for, for better or worse. Hmm. It's like, it's, it's not because you go to school. Again, it's, it's not because of what you learn at school that you get a job. It's because you get the certificate that you graduated that you get the job. Well, what, but what to an extent. In, in a way, yeah, but it's um, how did you get that certificate, though? So that, that means that you, you, know, you sat through four years or yeah, two years. I, of I, I, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people. I, I've seen a lot of people work. And um, even people that went to university, there's a lot of people that that have questionable skills and, and abilities. So, well, what university did you go to? <laughs> Doesn't matter. I've seen yeah. people from, from good universities, bad universities. Yeah, both good and bad. Which, which kind of makes me think that sure, universities probably have better mechanisms for both learning and networking and stuff like that compared to online courses. Mm-hmm. But then, if you put them side by side, at the end of the day, the, the actual skills that people take out of them really depend on that person's individual level of motivation and inherent skill. I still think that schools have a bigger advantage here because of the length, the duration of time that it takes to complete your degree and all the work that requires to complete a degree, as opposed to sitting through a course. I think if you were to lay them out side by side, I think the person that sat through the physical thing for X years probably just maybe did a little bit more and learned and got a little bit more out of it. 
I mean, it also depends on the course. I mean, like, let's say you're doing programming. I'm pretty sure they're picking up a lot of skills, technical skills there. Yeah, I think it really depends. Like, again, it, there's many reasons that a person would sit for a school without necessarily being committed to the school. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think in, in general, you're probably right. But I, I don't think it's um, always the case. And, and and again, like, there's always two sides to a coin. So. Well, it's not two. Two is a two is a false dichotomy. There's many sides. <laughs> Which makes this even harder to understand. Yeah, because yeah, I, I guess there's some like synergies, quote unquote, between different courses and the fact that you're going to university for for a period of time and like, yeah, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, like when you look at it, like on a course by course level, I really don't think there's much difference between a good online course and a and a good um, university course, especially if it's something very technical like accounting or something, and where you have the motivation. And, and and again, I also think that on the online course side, there needs to be some back and forth. Like if it's just a bunch of recorded videos, mm. that's not necessarily a good online course for me. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's good content and it's good. But a majority course. of courses are recorded online videos though. So that's the problem. Maybe, maybe they're not courses. Maybe they're just educational videos. Yeah. Except they're marketed as courses. I mean, that's, that's, that's Udemy essentially. <laughs> All right. So, so that's, that's the core of the problem, I guess. A lot of educational videos are marketed as courses whereas there's very few real courses where there's a real instructor and like real support and yeah. interaction and then and then i think when you look at those quality courses then then i think they're really they, they really can be on par with like university courses if, if you look at the best of the best and yeah. and, and, and what really are courses rather than just a bunch of videos uh, no my, my next question is like do such courses exist they do you, you don't usually find them on on a YouTube ad before a video plays you. But but um, yeah, I, I know, for example, like, um, there's this guy called Tiago Forte that runs a, a course on organizing information. So like how to structure folders and how to work on projects and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he always runs it as live cohorts. So I think he runs it, I don't know, twice a year or something. And they always start at the same time. And there's like different types of sessions. It's, it's interactive and there's homework and assignments. And like the assignments actually get looked through and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he, he's had a lot of success and he's got a lot of good reviews and a lot of people talk about his stuff. Um, I learned his stuff from his free articles and and, and I'm using it to this day. But um, but yeah, I, I think there are such courses. I just think they're far and few in between because yeah. there's so much bad ones out there. It sounds like it. I mean, like, I mean, if, if the overwhelming amount of courses out there are bad ones and that's and if they are what constitute the definition of an online course, then that's understandable. Yeah, and it's understandable why someone can take a look at the grand, you know, the grand scheme of things and be like, "All oh, con- most online courses suck." Yeah, so I, most absolutely. Online courses are. Yeah, I, I guess that's the biggest issue, and and I guess part of the issue is that most consumers just can't distinguish between what a good course is and what a bad course is. Yeah, well, yeah, that's another point because then then comes in the marketing, and the marketing tries to hype it up like this is the one affiliate marketing course that will change your life and put millions of dollars into your pocket within the next nine months. And any beginner with no experience can do this right now. With no trading experience, you can trade stocks and earn millions. Yeah. Any course that shows up as a pre-roll ad on YouTube, I think it's safer to stay away from it. Probably. All right. Well, all right, Well, that's my thoughts on courses. I, I still think uh, in-person human dynamic that you get in school. If you get it elsewhere, then that's good enough too. But schools are the ones that, you know, physical schools provide that. Yeah. So those are my thoughts. Uh, who should get them? Who shouldn't? I, I think if for the intellectually curious who want to try out like new topics, want to learn a little bit, 
who shouldn't uh, if it's too expensive you probably sh- if you can't afford it you probably shouldn't buy it you can probably find a book and definitely anything that promises you the moon and millions of dollars and <laughs> happiness and success and wealth and big marketing words i think <laughs> those can be avoided all right any final thoughts for today um, I guess not really. We, we kept it pretty casual and and, uh, and chatted about a bunch of things. But um, yeah, I think the only thought is um, if you're thinking of buying a course that you just saw in front of a YouTube video as an ad, and if that course promised you the moon, then stay away from it. Yeah, well, uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> right. This has been the Side Hustles and Stuff podcast, episode 40. If you want the show notes for this episode, go to sidehustlesandstuff.com forward slash e 40 where you can find out what a pet bottle is. <laughs> it, it stands for something, some chemical term that Casey will uh, explain there. And if you do want to start your own side hustle, also visit the show notes, check out Bluehost, where you can buy your own .com, buy your own website, and put your work out into the world and start making some money off of it. Push your side hustle. A website makes it real. This has been the Side Hustles and Stuff Podcast. Episode 40 with Casey and Yuri. Talk to you next week. Talk to you next week.